Well, it is very good to be here with you. Um, I am very much aware of the fact that by the Lord's disposition and Brother Thomas's scheduling, that I'm the only thing standing between you and your supper. <laughs> so we'll try to be indulgent, try to be indulgent with me. This doctrine of the assurance of our salvation is a, very, is a doctrine that is very precious to me. Brother Joe spoke very well about how that if we ground our assurance in our own selves, that it puts us on shaky ground. And I will stand here and say that I'm kind of, my life is kind of an object lesson in that. And so this doctrine is very precious to me, not only because of the truths contained in it, not, because, not only because of the comfort that is in it, but because I was not raised in such a belief. I was raised in Pentecostalism. Now, when we hear the term Pentecostalism today, we can get confused. We can think it's in this area that it refers to anti-Trinitarian, modalistic Pentecostalism. That's not what I was raised in. Sometimes we can conflate it with charismatics, modern charismatics, which can be, you never know what they believe sometimes. But no, I was raised in old-fashioned Pentecostalism, fundamental, very fundamentalistic in belief, very much a stress upon whole sanctification from a Wesleyan standpoint, very much an emphasis upon personal holiness. But being within a very Arminian system, there was zero assurance because your assurance was based upon how you were living at that moment. You were the standard by which you were saved and remained saved was perfection, because they held to perfectionism. Now, I won't go into all the detail about how that, that resulted in redefinitions of sin <laughs> and things such as that, and some things being classified as, well, that's not a sin, that's a mistake. But, and that's an, another thing, but as a conscientious young man, as a, man who, a young man who loved the Lord, who was saved at eight years old, and who was struggling just as any young person struggles, it created a lot of consternation. It just created a lot of grief when you don't feel any security. Now, I want to be fair that I have great affection for those people. I, my mother still contends that church. They are wonderful people. They were, many of them were such wonderful Christians. They proclaimed the truth of God as they knew it. They certainly believed in the Word of God. They did preach personal holiness in ways that I think some Baptist churches I've been in could really learn from the preaching of personal holiness and the need for personal holiness. But there was that weakness of a weak theology and an inadequate view of sin, an inadequate understanding of really the work of Christ. And anyone with any discernment that knew Romans 3.23 and know that we're constantly falling short of the glory of God, then that really created problems within us. And it ultimately led to an er erroneous view of God. 
Because God would come to be seen as unyielding and unloving and just not a loving God. Now, that's not the God portrayed in Scripture. It is the God that was filtered through an inadequate theology as we derived it. So this journey that God has taken me on has been, by His grace, within His providence, it was God's providence that those things would happen. I had dinner last night with my 19-year-old son, who's a student at Mississippi College, and he's sitting there spouting at dinner Reformed theology. And I am thinking about when I was 19 years old, he's very different, and I praise God that he has had a different background. Now, he will go through his own sanctification like I did. He will go just like you will. But the assurance of salvation is a very blessed thing. And if we ever think that we grounded in our present conduct or our present evaluation of our own holiness, then we will find it is very inadequate and we won't have it. So as I wanted to look at this, when we think about the struggles we have with our assurance, or at least the struggles we have in our lives, we, I had a seminary professor that said it this way, we are fallen people in a fallen world between Eden and heaven. Uh, we are, in, since we are regenerate, we are not the people we were, but we're often not the people we should be. And we're aware of that, but by God's grace, we are what we are. So I wanted to talk about, in a more surveying sense, I appreciated Brother Joe's focus down on Ephesians 1, and I'm going to do a little more broadly. Following John Owen, John Owen from his book, The Saint's Perseverance, gave some ideas and that I really felt had a seed of, of so much truth there that I want us to look to. So I want us to go first to the book of 2 Thessalonians, and I want to read, uh, start reading in verse 13. He says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Excuse me, I'm in 1 Thessalonians. I'm in 2 Thessalonians. You ever do that? First Thess- Second Thessalonians 2.13, I am sorry. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification of the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this He called you through our gospel, that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, just a little background on Paul and Thessalonica. Paul, if you read in the 16th chapter of the book of Acts, Paul came to Thessalonica from what he experienced in Philippi. They came to Thessalonica. They immediately go to the synagogue of the Jews. People believe. Some of the Jews believe. Some of the Gentiles believe. But then some of the Jews that did not believe stirred up the rest of the Gentiles, and then we have this big eruption against Paul in Thessalonica, to the extent that Paul had to be literally taken out by dark of night. 
to move him down the road. They were concerned of Paul's safety. And so Paul only spent maybe at most a few weeks at Thessalonica, and he was no doubt concerned that they had not had the time for him to ground them uh, in the, the truce. He went down to Athens, and he had continual concern in his heart, and Paul speaks of this in 1 Thessalonians. And he sends Timothy back because he cannot go back himself. And Timothy comes back with this wonderful report that the saints are standing firm. They're in the midst of persecution. They're dealing with difficulty. And, but they are firm in the truth. And Paul rejoices. He writes them 1 Thessalonians. And then a few months later, most likely it was just a short time later, a few months at the most, that Paul wrote them this book of 2 Thessalonians to correct some doctrinal issues, some issues about the coming of the Lord. But notice how the verse before verse 13, verse 11 and 12, he says, Therefore God sends them strong illusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And Paul is speaking of those who that it would speak to the... Thessalonians, Thessalonians, that these who were opposing them, God had given them to judgment. And then Paul goes to that passage, but we thank God for you because God chose you. Now, there's, there is a, if you have the King James or if you have the uh, ESV, there is a textual variant there. If you have the ESV, it says first fruits. If you have the King James, it says from the beginning. Uh, that's a very closely split textual variant. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it because whether uh, I'll deal with the temporal aspect later because whether it is in this text or not, the temporal aspect of our choosing is very well established in Scripture as Brother Joe just told us and in some other places. But I want us to see that, that He chose you. That God chose. That our relationship to the Lord is because He chose us. Brother Joe mentioned that there's no place for us in that in terms of our action. When you go back to 1 Thessalonians when Paul was writing to them in the first four, he says, For we know, brothers, beloved by the Lord, that He has chosen you. And he goes on to say why. You've received the gospel. The gospel's bearing fruit. You've recognized the truth. You're spreading the gospel yourself. And he says, we know God has chosen you. So the first foundation of our assurance as we look at the word of God is the election of God. The election of God that he chose us. He, there's no potentiality here. There's no, if you do this, as Brother Joe also said, but it's God's work. Now, if we say, well, when did that happen? Well, Brother Joe did a very good job in Ephesians 1. I was going to go to Ephesians 1, but I won't go to that now because he did such a wonderful job with it. That he chose us from the beginning, before the foundation of the world. It says in love, he predestined us to adoption. It said, from Jesus Christ unto himself. But I also want to go to to 2 Timothy chapter 1, another passage in which Paul deals with this. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He says that, Paul says that God is the one who saved us and called us to a holy calling 
not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now that word, those three words there in Greek, chronon, uh, ionion, before eternal ages, King James I think translates it before time began, before the ages began, but what it means is the time before time. It means before the foundation of the world. That's when God chose us. And notice it says He didn't call us because of our works, either anticipated works or actual works. There were no actual works, but there were no, not because of even our anticipated work, but because of His own purpose and grace given to us in Christ Jesus in this before time. Before time began, before the ages began. Now, if that doesn't found our assurance in something solid, the eternal election of God. And Paul uses this same terminology in uh, the book of Titus. In Titus chapter 1, uses the same words. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, of Jesus Christ for the sake of of the faith of God's elect and their elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life which God who never lies promised before the ages again same three greek words before time began before the ages began eternal life the grace the, all of these things were promised to us now John Owen called this the immutability of the divine purpose God has a divine purpose in our calling, our election. It is like everything else God does. It's immutable. It's unchangeable. So the foundation of our hope is in that, in what God has done before time. And that's a great blessing. Now, as He worked in time to bring about our sanctification and bring about our salvation. In fact, uh, uh, Thessal 2 Thessalonians, the passage I read said it was through sanctification of the Spirit, Him setting us apart by the Holy Spirit and belief in the truth. Opened our eyes that we may see and we believed. So the immutability of the divine purpose is the first ground that I'm going to mention of our assurance. I want to go next to one of the things that also John Owen said, that we have assurance because of the promises of God. We have assurance because of the promises of God. There's a wonderful passage in 2 Peter where he says, 2 Peter chapter, two, chapter 1, verses 4, he says, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God's promises. God, who the Scripture says, who cannot lie. God, who cannot fail to keep His promises. I'm a person who really likes, really takes my word very seriously. I really, if I make a commitment to you, I really want to keep that. But... I fall short sometimes. I am unable to keep it sometimes. Sometimes I promise more than I can deliver. Sometimes something comes up that I can't deliver. But the Bible says God who cannot lie. And there are many, many promises in the Scripture regarding our faith. Uh, 
Paul said they're all yes in Christ, and we say amen to them. But I want to focus upon one particular promise that really runs from the Old Testament through the New, and it is part of us. And it's in the third chapter of Galatians, which uh, if you've never studied the third chapter of Galatians much, it really should be a a chapter that uh, you should study a lot because there's so, so much depth in it. But it's regarding the promise of God to Abraham and how it becomes that which stands behind our salvation. It's not the first promise God gave. I would take us back to Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, God promising to bruise the serpent's head but with the seed of the woman. But we have this promise to Abraham, and we know that it is significant for our salvation because Paul deals with it in great detail in Romans, in Galatians chapter 3. Now he says, in, uh, beginning in verse 16, Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offsprings. He does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, Paul is referring to Genesis 12, 7, where God said to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. And that was the promise that he is specifically quoting. Of course, then we go to Romans 4, and then Paul expands the land to be in the heir of the world. That would be the heir of the world. So Paul then founds our hope in that promise of God to Abraham that is fulfilled in Christ. Unless we kind of think that maybe it has something to do with the bloodline we're in, Paul says in the last part of that chapter, verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to to the promise. We, as believers in Christ, because the promises are made to Abraham, fulfilled in Christ himself, and therefore we who are in Christ are heirs of the promise of Abraham. And so we are assured because God is a God who fulfills his promises. Another thing to move on. We are assured because of the mediation of Christ. We are assured in the mediation of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now, a mediator is a go-between in parties, a mediator. We see this in labor negotiations. We see it sometimes in sports negotiations. Sometimes they have an arbitrator that will be the mediator that will bring the parties together and try to come to an agreement. But the parties here are the holy God with his holy law and we as sinners who have despised his law 
and who have disobeyed him completely. And that's the problem. And the Bible says that there is one mediator because we're not able to be a mediator for ourselves. We're not able to stand up to, to God. We have no requirements. We're sinful. But it says there's one mediator between God and man. And, and the term there, anthropos, anthropos, is a term for mankind. So he's say the point is not male or female, but there's one mediator between God and human beings. And that is Jesus Christ, who is himself a human being, I think the Revised Standard Version says. The point is that Christ is human, and therefore he can be a mediator for us. But Christ is a perfect mediator. He's perfect. He's holy. He can fulfill every requirement of the law of God and stand in for us. He's fully human while also being fully God. And that's fundamental. If we have no mediator, we have no hope. If we have no mediator, we are lost. If we have no mediator, we will be condemned because we're sinful and cannot meet the requirements. But Christ is the perfect mediator. He fulfills all the requirements. He is a human being. He has obeyed God's law in every sense of the word he did no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, and therefore he can be the perfect mediator. The, the writer of Hebrews said, therefore, in, in Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, many of us love the book of Hebrews. It's so rich. It gives us such a picture of the law and how it is fulfilled in Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is talking about the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31 that God promised that he would make a new covenant. Not like the first covenant that they broke. They could not keep the law. They could not obey the law because the covenant of the law could not change the human heart. It could only condemn. But it said that the new covenant that Christ is a mediator of is mediated by him and a death has occurred to redeem us from the transgressions under the first covenant. He redeems us by his own death. He rose on to write in Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than that of Abel. Now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't speak of a possible atonement. He doesn't speak of a conditional atonement. He speaks of an actual atonement in Christ's blood that purchased salvation, that atoned for sin, and accomplished everything that God called for him to accomplish. So, our assurance is grounded in the fact that we have a mediator that has perfectly fulfilled every requirement that God requires within himself and has died for our sins. And in the book of Hebrews, this is tied so closely to the perfect priesthood of Christ. 
And, and that is such a rich subject of study within the book of Hebrews because the priest, the high priest, represented the people before God. But the problem was the priests were sinful and the priest's ministry could not continue because they all died and they had sinned themselves. But then Hebrews 7.16 is such a blessed scripture to me because he says, talking about Christ being from a different order of priesthood, the order of Melchizedek rather than the order of Aaron. But instead of having a priesthood that discontinues because the priest dies, it says, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. He continues a priest forever. He ever lives to make intercession. He ever lives to be our high priest. He wrote in a little further down in that chapter, verse 26 to 27, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. I love it when you go to that first chapter of the book of Hebrews where it said that after he had made purification for sin, he sat down. Everything was completed. If you see a model of the temple or the, the, the tabernacle, there's no seats in there. There's no chairs in there. The, the priest was always going around doing things, and then when he was done, he got out of there as quick as he could. Lest he die. But it says when he did his perfect sacrifice, it was all done. He sat down. So our assurance is founded in a mediator that was perfect and holy and absolutely and perfectly completed everything that had to be done for our redemption. Well, another one. Another one. We have assurance because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is such a gift to us. I, Don and I are, take part in a forum and we sometimes deal with people and it's, I kind of bristle when I see people who think that if we hold to a cessationist viewpoint, a viewpoint that the sign gifts are no longer being a normative part of the church today, that somehow we don't believe in the activity of the Holy Spirit. And notice I say that sign gifts, I didn't say miraculous gifts, because God's still doing miracles. The regeneration of a lost soul, the salvation of any soul is the greatest miracle ever occurs that he would regenerate our dead hearts, that he would turn us from darkness to light. That's a miracle. So the Holy Spirit is very much active in our salvation. The Holy Spirit is very much active in our life and in our sanctification and in our assurance. And it's such a blessed thing for us. Uh, there's, one po uh, in, there's one passage that Paul spoke in... Romans chapter 8, and 
Romans chapter 8 is one of the, another one of those chapters, probably the pinnacle of the book of Romans and this masterful treatise that Paul did in the book of Romans. And Paul says in uh, verse 16 of chapter 8, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. There is an internal testimony of the Spirit to our salvation. There is a work of the Spirit that He does within us because He is constantly with us. And I experienced this myself. As I told you, I was raised in this Pentecostal Armenian background, a very strict, uh, you don't sin or you're lost. And I was in that for about half my life. So it's not like it was just when I was 15 years old, I saw it came out of it. I'm 64 now. So we're talking about about half my life. There's a lot of experience there. But experience a time decades ago, many, uh, several decades ago, in which I did what Brother Jeff Durbin said last night. I really face-planted. You know, it was one of those real failures of God. And uh, one of those that as a Pentecostal, you think I'm waiting for the condemnation of God. You know, I'm waiting for God's condemnation. Now, now, let me say that I was not an arrogant sinner. I was not, like, defiant. I was not, I was broken. I was like, oh, I'm broken in this. I'm in all this. And it was at that time. And, and I can, it was so blessed to me, and it was such a work of God. And I don't want to sound too gooey here, but I just felt the embrace of the Spirit. And it was so sweet. Now, my theology wasn't really straightened out yet. I, I was a person who was always in the Word. I, I, had a gr I had a good biblical knowledge, but I had not had the best of teaching, and really God had not brought me to that point in my sanctification where I had the understanding of these things. So really, at that point, with regarding to assurance, this was all I had. And God gave it to me, this this sense of God's love because I was expecting condemnation. So the Holy Spirit in our lives, and I know that we have all experienced the work of the Spirit in our lives. Jesus talked about when the Spirit of truth would come, what He would do. He would lead us into all truth. He would convict the world of sin, justice, and righteousness. He would guide us bring things to our remembrance. We've experienced all of these things in the work of the Holy Spirit. But also this internal witness of the Spirit. That His presence is with us. Sometimes we may know the truth. Sometimes we may know the truth, but not apprehend it. That's kind of where I was. But then sometimes we can be in such a state that we have trouble thinking about the truth and the, the Spirit's work in our life can be so wonderful. There's a, in that same 8th chapter, Paul talks about how the Spirit intercedes when we pray. 
So when we don't know how to pray as we ought, He intercedes with groanings that cannot be uttered. How many times have you experienced? I've experienced this when I've knelt down and I was so broken or I was so upset, I could not pray. And I could only say, oh God, oh God. But I did so with the confidence of the word of God that the spirit was praying for me. So this witness and this testimony of the spirit is such a blessing to us. Last one. Last one. Following John Owen again. Assurance because of the intercession of Christ. Assurance because of the intercession of Christ. We know the story of Peter on the night. You know, Jesus is going to be arrested. He says, you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to, you're going, some of you are going to betray me. And Peter said, I don't know about the rest of these guys, but not me. I won't do it. And Jesus said to Peter, not necessarily in response to that, but he, he said, Peter, Peter, Simon, Simon, Luke 22. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that you, your faith, may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You say, Jesus knew. Peter may have thought he was strong, but Peter, Jesus knew what, where Peter was. Jesus knew what Peter's strength was. And Jesus says, I've prayed for you. If Jesus prayed for Peter, Jesus praying in the perfection of the will of God, you know Peter's not going to fail. And the fact that Christ is our, not only our mediator, he is the one who intercedes for us. And Paul talks about this at the end of Romans chapter 8, and it's just so wonderful. Uh, we, look, we look at the golden chain of grace that he has elected, he's called us, he's elected us, he's predestined us, and all of this chain of grace, and then we'll be glorified. But then he closes that, and what shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge? Against God's elect, against the ones God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who is going to turn back that justification if God justifies? Who is it to condemn? Christ, it is Christ Jesus who died and atoned. And more than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? And think about that. Christ died. He was raised. He died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. Proof that his, the sacrifice was a completed sacrifice and God was absolutely satisfied. He ascends to the right hand of the Father and He sits and waits. No, 
He's interceding for us. He's praying for us to the Father. So, we have assurance because of the perfect intercession of Christ. I don't know, we're all in different places in our sanctification. We all, sometimes we're in struggles with our assurance. And a lot of times that's because there are things in our lives or maybe because we don't know the scriptures as we should. Maybe because we're not apprehending what we do know. But I want to encourage you that you belong to Christ. He has you on this road to sanctification. He's going to bring you to where he wants you to be. I, I look back on my own life and say, wow, because I was, I was in some of the most fundamental of fundamental Pentecostals you could imagine. And they were good people. And then I look at myself now, I'm a Reformed Baptist. It sounds like, wow, that's light years away. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And God's working in your life also. Wherever you are, God's got a purpose to bring you to where he wants you to be. It may be through some difficulties. I didn't go through all of everything, but there was a lot of anguish in those times. There were, a lot of, there were failures in those times. There, was, there were struggles with doctrine in those times. Uh, the road to sanctification is never easy. But the fruit is blessed. And now I look back and I say, praise God for it all. Praise God for it all. Praise God that he has enlightened my eyes that I now know how my assurance is founded in Christ. It is affirmed in his unchangeable word and I know I am saved. Do I falter? Yes, we all do. Joe, Brother Joe and I were talking before in the break and talking about how as God brings us to greater maturity, we don't reach this point where we say, oh, well, I've now gotten to holiness. God actually opens our eyes to the sin that remains in us. The story was told, I heard John MacArthur tell it, that a seminary student came into his office and said, well, John, when did you conquer pride? He said, oh, the naivete. But God is working in our lives He's working grace in our lives. He's bringing us to a greater understanding of him. He's bringing us to a greater assurance of his love for us because we know it is in Christ Jesus himself. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and thank you for the hope that is in Christ. Thank you, Father, for all the supports that you have given us in your word and by your spirit that we can be assured of that hope. Father, we thank you for our brothers and sisters who encourage us. But Lord, we love Christ. And thank you for his perfect sacrifice, his perfect mediation, his continual intercession for us. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.